0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 143, Politics at its Best and Worst. First, as always, I want to thank listeners and patrons. So thanks to Gennady for his donation. It was a real pleasure to meet him and his family in Sofia. I also want to give a shout out to listener Oliver, who grabbed beers with me in Sofia, and Maria and her husband, who I had a nice lunch with. Uh, it was. I met so many uh, every single August. Everyone's on vacation. Lots of people visit Bulgaria, and I meet a ton of you listeners, and it is always so much fun. It's just a, a highlight of my summer every single time. So thank you all so much and thank you to Neleke Shurman i hope i pronounce that right Ivan Gavazov and Douglas Simkin for their donations so big thanks to everyone always feel free to get in touch if you're visiting sofia it's great to meet you all now let's get into uh, the politics it's 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 a it's an ugly time so last time we saw bulgaria's first government and monarch in centuries begin to work to run the country but alexander Bottenberg was Despite the fact that he was initially greeted with these huge crowds, he quickly found himself mired in a political swamp, frustrated by a constitution he felt made it impossible for him to govern as he wished, quickly making enemies as he formed a temporary government from the minority conservative party, which quickly used its power to unfairly shape the soon-to-be-held first-ever democratic elections. Meanwhile, Russian policy was a contradictory mess, as Bulgaria's confusing political situation worked to make sense of how it should govern the young country. Now, just weeks into his reign, Battenberg has made plenty of enemies in St. Petersburg and Sofia alike. He's been persuaded not to abandon the constitution or delay the first election, but what else he might try remains to be seen. Now, I want to begin by mentioning two general trends going on at this moment. I mentioned before that Bulgaria had to assume a portion of the Ottoman debt to various European creditors as a part of the Treaty of Berlin, but this wasn't the only financial obligation to come out of that treaty. Bulgaria was also required to fund a variety of railroad projects. As Misha Glenny writes, quote, the ubiquitous Austrian Baron Hirsch was granted the right to extend the Orient Express through Bulgaria to link up with the line he was already building in eastern Rumelia. The British when I promised that Bulgaria would buy the useless russe varna line, obsolete since the signing of an international agreement on the navigation of the Danube. The Russians demanded that the Bulgarians pay for a new railway line from Russe to the, to the Danube to Sofia, which would then be of vital strategic importance. Moreover, the Russians wanted their line built before Baron Hirsch's. But even Russia's allies in Bulgaria, the Liberals, could see that for economic reasons, the Orient Express was a more urgent project. As a consequence, the rail issue became a bone of contention between successive Bulgarian governments and the Russians, end quote. So, you So know, th- this just seems to be almost a reflection of Bulgaria's wider geopolitical uh, and sort of internal political contradictions and struggles right? That it's this brand new country. It has so many things it needs to do. But all these outside powers are jumping in and telling it what to do. It's all very contradictory. And the whole thing is just an absolute mess. You know, I have my fair bit of criticisms of so many of Bulgaria's uh, governments and the the people involved in making decisions to govern the country. But at the same time, got to say, I do not envy their task. I mean, it's clear that Bulgaria is in an incredibly difficult geopolitical situation when it comes to its development. And I also previously mentioned how the conservative government appointed by Prince Alexander attempted to get rid of any liberals in the government and to reward their supporters. Honestly, this is going to become a pattern where whichever political party gains power quickly moves to purge the government and reward its supporters with government offices, whether they're qualified or not. Now, to be fair, this was a common practice in the United States at this time as well, and you know, it's something we don't really think about much, but in you know the 19th century into early 20th century politics, this was a, a very common thing around the world, and as you can imagine, it resulted in governments being run extremely badly because... You know, every, again, every time a political party changed, you know, everyone from the, all the way down to like the lowest government offices, basically everyone changed. And so it was extremely difficult for people to build up experience in their roles. And as I said, a lot of the people who, gave, who kind of won these roles were not very qualified. They were just supporters. And so you got extremely badly run uh, services and things from the government as a result. And so this is why, you know, Eventually, places like Bulgaria and you know the United States to make that comparison will at some point pass laws which create career civil service offices, uh, which massively increase the effectiveness of government. So, yeah, there, there's I keep saying this is the, the inner political scientist in me is coming out here. But. Now, yeah, so. For the time being, though, this means that there are frequent kind of purges that prevent the building of deeper institutional knowledge and competency in all of Bulgaria's ministries. So we've got these twin forces at play with political corruption and meddling by the great powers, both making the already difficult job of governing the new Bulgarian state nearly impossible. Now, with all that in mind, we're picking the story back up in late July 1879 as the process of setting up the Bulgarian government continues. In the final days of the month, Prince Alexander issued orders establishing the specific structures for various ministries. These were modeled on France. And Bulgaria established its first diplomatic missions in Constantinople, Bucharest, and Belgrade. Remember, technically Bulgarian foreign policy wasn't really supposed to exist uh, because they were still technically under the Ottoman Empire, but in practice, they could still represent Bulgarian interests. Now, a couple of countries that, it's interesting to me, are not on this list. St. Petersburg. For that, you can assume that, like, okay, Bulgaria has very close ties with Russia anyways. They, they don't necessarily maybe need a formal diplomat. You know, they're already going back and forth constantly. Also, interesting enough, Athens. It's the, the only other kind of uh, super close-by country that doesn't get such an office. Um, but... In other places, Bulgarian businessmen would kind of serve as unofficial diplomatic r- r- representatives. So, for example, the Panitza brothers in Vienna basically served this role, which is why Vienna is not on that list. Now, again, we're starting in July, and as that summer of 1879 wore on, Bulgaria and eastern Rumelia saw more and more firsts, as the first-ever electric lights began working in Plovdiv, and the Bulgarian principality established a Danubian navy. Now, at some point during the year, the first telephone in Bulgaria was also set up between the home and office of Alexander Bogoridi. So it's kind of it's fun. The first ever telephone line was from the guy's house to his office. <laughs> this is a purely internal line. Now, in a mood that was clearly designed to help build stronger links between Bulgaria and all the territories it wanted to eventually annex, the San Stefano kind of territories, Bulgaria also chose to remove import taxes on all goods from Macedonia, Adrianople, and Eastern Romalia, so to kind of more closely integrate those economies. So a lot of new policies are are happening. So even though politics are sort of a mess right now, things are changing. Things are getting done. Laws are getting passed. But as we saw in that last episode, even in these early months, Prince Alexander was feeling deeply frustrated and isolated in his position. Now, luckily for him, there was one person with whom he felt he could speak openly. That was Prince Carol of Romania. Both men were German royals who had been imported to rule newly independent Balkan states. The difference was that Carol had ruled Romania for over a decade at this point, so he had a little more experience. Okay, a lot more experience, but you know. Now, even though Bulgaria did resent Romania's annexation of northern Dobryja, the the two states did enjoy pretty good relations at this point. Remember, as we know, uh, so much of the kind of Bulgarian um, national revival uh, and, and kind of revolutionary activities had been based in Romania. Romania had allowed that for the most part. So, you know, they had worked closely together, officially and unofficially, for a while. Now, a few weeks before Bulgaria's first elections, Prince Alexander traveled to Bucharest to meet his counterpart. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find any details about really what happened at this meeting, but it is interesting to note that some old proposals for a union between Romania and Bulgaria were actually swirling around at this point. Evidently, some had considered the idea that Carol could be nominated as Bulgaria's prince, joining the two states in a personal union, much as Wallachia and Moldavia had been joined. But this was roundly rejected by Russia and Bulgarian politicians, who, you know, some thought that Carol could also achieve the same ends by formally adopting uh, Prince Alexander, but this also went nowhere. Now, based on the letters I read between the two, I imagine Alexander seemed to kind of confide in Carol a lot and ask for his advice, even if, uh, you know, he wasn't going to become his de facto father. But this is just another reminder. This is something we're going to talk about a lot in the rest of this podcast, all these various proposals for a broader Balkan union. You know, we, we talked uh, before during the Ottoman period about these, and this is kind of the latest one. What if we joined Romania and Bulgaria? Which, if you remember the history of the Second Bulgarian Empire, is not that strange an idea. But, you know, it seems uh, Bulgarian politicians were, were, you know, they waited five centuries to have a state of their own. And I don't think they were terribly interested in sharing it at this point. So, Now, once Prince Alexander was back in Sofia, elections were held in mid-October. Despite their efforts to manipulate the process to their own advantage, the Conservative Party again lost decisively, winning only 30 seats, while the Liberals won the remaining 140. So with less than 18% of the seats, the Conservatives had really just been trounced. This loss was even more striking considering how few Bulgarians were eligible to vote and how the requirements would have overrepresented the people who were more likely to vote for the Conservatives, right? The, um kind of landowning elite, so to speak. Now, for some context, of the 1.8 million citizens of the Principality of Bulgaria at the time, only 219,000 were eligible to vote, and only 32% of them actually voted. So, (laughs) to put those numbers together, this National Assembly that was just voted into power, the percentage of the population that actually went out and voted was 4%, which even by today's standards for any state, like 4% is an astonishingly low number for vote, voter participation. Even only looking at the 32% of eligible voters, that's still pretty shockingly low. And I think, honestly, it, it points to the fact that, you know, as we know, Bulgaria still didn't have any experience with democracy. You know, I think a lot of the population still were, you know, obviously sort of peasants, not very literate probably not getting newspapers, a lot of them, uh, in rural areas. So just a lot of people, I imagine, were not very connected into politics, weren't really aware of what was going on, weren't really in line, didn't really know who to vote for, I would would imagine. Uh, Of course, both political parties are starting to do more outreach and things, but still, this is early days, and it seems like uh, those probably didn't have much of an effect here, and so you got this result. Now, Some foreign diplomats did report that the overall voting process proceeded well. Black points out that there were some pretty serious abuses, the worst of which involved electoral bureaus, which were elected in the morning of the election itself and which effectively ran the elections. Uh, Now, stick with me. This is extremely strange. As I said, I have several degrees connected with political science. I have never heard of such a process for elections, and so this is very bizarre to learn about. So, again, in this system, you have two elections in the same day. The morning election elects the electoral kind of committee that runs the afternoon election, which elects the national assembly members. And essentially, if you win, win control of that kind of first bureau, that committee in the morning, it almost guaranteed an electoral victory because you, the people on that committee would be able and frankly were willing to destroy ballots, allow people to vote twice, just generally commit all kinds of fraud and abuse. So, to win control of those bureaus, partisans of whichever political party would arrive early in the morning and often use threats or actual physical violence to block access to the voting booths for opposing political party members. So, yeah, it's not a great system. But while there is evidence that these tactics were used in later elections, I don't have a whole lot of specifics about how often this was used, you know, all the prevalence and all this kind of stuff, but we've got some evidence that these kinds of abuses were happening. All this set the stage for a showdown. Prince Alexander now faced an assembly determined to reduce his power while he himself felt that the power he currently possessed was totally insufficient to begin with. But even before that showdown could commence, elections were also held in eastern Rumelia. Now, we couldn't really find a good breakdown by party, but they did elect Ivan Geshov as the assembly president, and although he was from a wealthy merchant family, he associated largely with the liberals. So if you want to look at it that way, it seems that Eastern Romelia elected a roughly liberal government. Now, in Plavdiv, more importantly than kind of how many votes each party won, was, I think, in, for them, the ethnic makeup of the assembly. Because, you know, basically Eastern Romelia was a little bit more ethnically diverse than the principality, and they were a little more concerned about making sure that Bulgarians could dominate the state. So there, Bulgarians won 40 out of 56 seats, with the remainder largely going to Turks and Greeks. For reference, the population was roughly 70% Bulgarian, 21% Muslim, that includes both Turks and Pomaks, and about 5% Greek at this time. But in general, it seems that the ab- absence of a prince like Alexander and with the primary goal of simply uniting with Bulgaria meant that in eastern Rumelia there wasn't nearly as much fighting between political factions. In general, politics here was described as being very calm under the leadership of Geshov. Of course, Eastern Rumelia also had other challenges, namely rebuilding itself after the twin devastations of the April uprising and the Russo-Turkish War. And shortly after the election, Alexander Bogoridi laid the symbolic first stone in the rebuilding of Starozagora in line with its new grid layout following its total devastation. So, yeah, if you, if you visit Bulgaria today, you know, nearly all Bulgarian towns and villages and things have kind of twisty roads and things. They're not super well laid out, except for Sofia, which, of course, grew, grew very large. But if you go to uh, Stara Zagora, it's very different. It's a big grid. And this is the reason why it was kind of totally rebuilt. But overall, the big kind of difference here is that, you know, politics at this point in Sofia is blood sport. It is brutal. It is partisan. It is rough. Politics in Plovdiv is Ailak, if you will. There's a Plovdiv slang word for kind of uh, calm, don't worry about it, like manana, kind of. You know, things there are are very smooth. But despite the calmness of Eastern Rumelian politics, below the surface there was a lot happening. Throughout the territory, so called gymnastic societies were formed, ostensibly as sports clubs but in reality they were kind of paramilitary organizations which gave their members military-style training in preparation for future conflicts over Eastern Romilia status. This is a fairly common thing even through the 20th century. A lot of states that uh, couldn't kind of form an army uh, legally would form gymnastic societies and use this as a cover to kind of train paramilitaries. Um, Now, in November of 1879, basically acknowledging the reality of these gymnastic societies, Bogoridi issued an order kind of converting them into a more official militia reserve. Indeed, the strength of these organizations, which counted about 100,000 members in their first few years out of just under 700,000 Bulgarians in eastern Rumelia, helped convince the sultan not to use Ottoman soldiers to occupy the territory. Remember, legally speaking, the sultan was not allowed to send troops into Eastern Rumelia unless the Eastern Rumelian leader, in this case Bogoridi, requested them. But, you know, he could have potentially, it's still his territory, he could have potentially sort of done it anyways and, you know, dared any of the European powers to stop him. But the strength of these uh, unofficial paramilitary gymnastic societies convinced the sultan that it would be a suicide mission to try this. Now, Back in the Principality, another aspect of the aftermath of the war was being handled as Metropolitan Grigori handed over clerical power in northern Dobruja to the Romanian Orthodox Church. Again, remember that northern Dobruja had just been given to Romania as compensation for the Russians annexing Bessarabia. Now, in the first days of November, Only actually one day apart. The legislatures of Bulgaria and Eastern Rumelia finally began operations as the first ever democratically elected bodies in Bulgarian history. Although, as I mentioned, remember, the the number of people allowed to vote is pretty limited, so they're not super democratic, but still, it's a milestone. Right away, the two bodies began operating very differently, as I kind of alluded to before. Elena Statelova described governance in Eastern Rumelia under Geshov, writing that, quote, he used his restrained demeanor and tact to bring the to the institution a businesslike atmosphere of efficiency and moderation under his able leadership the assembly passed the budget for 1879 to 1880 and 12 laws the proceedings were calm and the decisions reflected a shared effort to restore the economy overcome financial difficulties assist refugees etc she goes on to quote the writer ivan vazov who wrote that quote it was as if the assembly were composed of persons with many years of parliamentary experience, accustomed to discipline and attitudes of political deference, end quote. So, you know, for, for anyone who was looking at uh, politics in Plovdiv and Eastern Rumelia, it was shocking at how calm and efficient and polite their kind of political culture was already, which yeah, is not very common for a brand new democracy. However, Things in Sofia were a little different. There, under the chairmanship of Petko Karavelov, things went downhill pretty quickly. He opened the proceedings of the National Assembly by stating that the liberals had to prove the conservatives wrong and not act like a bunch of vagabonds. For reference, at the same time, one conservative member yelled that the liberals were destroyers, nihilists, and wastrels. However... Proceedings were often basically shouting matches. A British eyewitness described the members of the uh, Bulgarian assembly, writing, quote, the majority being simple peasants who listened with open mouths to the bombastic phrases of a few ranters of the left, end quote. So, yeah, sadly, Bulgaria's assembly was not doing itself any favors either for governing the country or looking good in the eyes of the great powers needless to say the more formal prince alexander was rather horrified by the way his assembly acted and stated that the assembly was quote more like a reunion of lunatics than sensible men end quote. to make matters worse the dominant liberal party was already fracturing into centrist moderate and radical wings duncan perry described them running quote the centrists were led by Karovelov and Slovakov, and they espoused roughly the views of European liberals re- regarding political liberty and equality. The moderates, headed by the quixotic Tsankov, remained prepared to work with the conservatives. The radicals, among whose members were found Stoyanov and Stambolov, favored power to the people and diminishing central authority. End quote. So you've got these, you know, Awful, kind of difficult fights between the liberals and the conservatives, and the liberals are starting to fracture, and things, I mean, you know, we're we're not even a year into this, and things are proper and messy. You know, already at this point, as Perry kind of argues, quote, the animosities resulting from the polarization of the nascent party seem to place national good in a secondary position, end quote. I think that is critical. So many of these politicians at this point seem to think, You know, the number one thing is winning the argument or defeating their enemy politicians and not helping Bulgaria, you know, grow, uh, start to develop. It's a brand new country at this point, and it desperately needs attention and development and good governance. Now, as things got more contentious, the young Stefan Stambolov quickly made a reputation as a firebrand, delivering impassioned speeches. Now, the problem with the young Stefan Stambolov was the young part. At 24 years old, he was technically too young to even serve in the assembly and had used fake papers to overcome that requirement. However, by late November, the conservatives had decided to try to use this as a pretext to oust him. In the fight, both sides presented documents and testimony to indicate that Stomboeuf was the required 30 years old, or the actual 24. Ultimately, though, his reputation as a revolutionary was enough to convince a majority of the assembly to vote that he was indeed 30 years old. But this was far from the biggest issue facing the body at the moment. Remember, despite the strong liberal majority, the government itself was still technically a conservative one, and it quickly voided some of the election results claiming irregularities. Which, okay, there seemed to have been irregularities, but the conservatives seemed to be using those claims just as a tool to kind of gain more power. The the liberal-dominated assembly responded to this by refusing to pass a budget, And all this basically ground everything to a halt and forced the conservative government to step down. So, with that, Bulgaria's first ever government had lasted a whopping 142 days. Still, Burumov's government technically stayed in as a caretaker as the prince attempted to build a coalition. At this point, Prince Alexander was, as usual, getting contradictory advice from the two Russian factions. One argued that allowing the liberals to form a government on their own was entirely unacceptable. The other argued that dissolving parliament now would create a dangerous precedent for further fighting between the prince and the liberals. This group argued that the liberals would become less radical once they were actually governing the country. Now, Alexander did ultimately propose a coalition government, but only as a means to obtain concessions in the form of constitutional amendments. Remember, Alexander... now. He prefers the Conservatives to the Liberals, but his number one goal is still at least amending if not getting rid of the Constitution. That's what he wants to do. And so he's playing that game. Alexander wanted the Constitution to be changed to grant freedom of the press and assembly, uh, alongside making it easier to amend the Constitution in the future, future, as well as a few other minor changes. Now, initially Petko Karavelov and the Liberals pushed back, but In a second meeting with Alexander, he decided these requests were actually reasonable, and both men came to understand each other more. However, this understanding did not extend to the Liberal Party as a whole, as they roundly rejected the proposal despite their leader's support. Now, in light of this, Alexander ultimately did dissolve the National Assembly. Bulgaria's first democratically elected legislature had lasted just over a month. Black writes that, quote, Dissolving the assembly merely meant postponing the problem of getting a working majority and at the same time, greatly increasing the bitterness of feelings between the two parties. Battenberg's one hope was that he would be able to have the constitution amended before a new crisis arose. End quote. So, in other words, you could think of this as brinksmanship, right? That there's all this fighting and they both sides are kind of escalating escalating tensions, uh, escalating things, and, well, this is a dangerous game to play in a democracy. Now, needless to say, the liberals were very unhappy with the dissolution of the assembly and loudly proclaimed, long live Bulgaria and long live the Constitution, while denouncing Prince Alexander. A new temporary government was formed and Bishop Clement was nominated to head it. He was Fairly pro-Russian, having uh, attended seminary in Odessa and Kiev, but despite his role as bishop, he was at this point more of a politician than an actual church official. But still, he was you know, not a harsh partisan for either side and would run things in the meantime. New elections were scheduled for late January 1880, but in the meantime there were some big changes happening to Little Sofia. Here, I need to uh, introduce Jiri Prošek, a Czech engineer, writer, and advocate for Bulgaria who had basically spent the last 12 years living in the region. Now, I'm not going to talk about all of them, but in general, in this early period in Bulgarian history, there's quite a few Czech immigrants who are going to have a fairly big impact on Bulgaria, and he's one of them. Now, he settled in Sofia after the war, working with the Russian administration and teaching at the recently established Girls' High School. At this moment, he was finishing up a master plan for the city of Sofia, building on work previously done by two other Czechs in the earlier like year or two. Because remember, at this point, Sofia is still a tiny, tiny town with kind of wooden buildings and kind of muddy, unpaved streets. It, it needs a lot of work to be a proper capital. Now, this proposed plan, initially called the Proschek Plan, but was then referred to as the Battenberg Plan once the prince approved it, envisioned transforming Sofia's irregular and organic street network into something far more uniform and surrounded by a ring road. Now, I'll include uh, an image of Sofia at this time with the new plan superimposed on what existed before on the website, as well as some pictures from starosofia.com, which is a very cool website with lots of old photographs and maps and things. Now... It's kind of cool for me as well, looking at this, because the apartment I just bought with my wife wasn't built until 1911, but it and the neighborhood are basically laid out in this plan. So where I live now is a part of this plan and was really decided by Proszek, so it's kind of cool. I even have an original 1907 map of Sofia showing this layout framed right above me as I record this episode. A nice gift from a good friend. Now, bear this in mind. This layout covered Sofia roughly between Slievnitsa Boulevard to the north, Vasilevsky Boulevard to the east, Patryach Boulevard to the south, and botev Boulevard to the west. So anyone who's familiar with Sofia or wants to hop on like Google Maps or something, you can kind of see the rough square that is included in this initial plan. Um, so in other words, the city that's envisioned at this moment is less than two kilometers wide and Today, you could basically walk from one end to the other in about 25 minutes. So, you know, this is the grand plan for Sofia relative to what it was at the time, and it's still pretty small. But, you know, Sofia has time. So, in general, Sofia now has a plan for its development, but Bulgaria itself is still somewhat aimless, as it holds its second election in three months, which feels quite familiar today as Bulgaria prepares to hold probably its third election in a few months. Now, once again, the liberals triumphed, and Prince Alexander became more determined than ever to amend the constitution. But to do this, he needed Russian support, so he used the excuse of the 25th anniversary of Tsar Alexander II's rule in Russia as an excuse to travel to St. Petersburg and convince his uncle to support changes to the constitution. Thus, by February 1880, less than a year into his rule, the Austrian representative in Sofia noted how dependent the prince was on Russia, writing, quote, "...the force of resistance of the young prince is broken, bounded by the innumerable kindnesses rendered him by Emperor Alexander, very dependent from the material point of view, lacking honest advisors, Prince Alexander, in spite of his best intentions, had sooner or later to become the desired instrument of Pan-Slavism." End quote. So Alexander's being manipulated, he doesn't have good advisors, he's very dependent on Russia he's you can see why he's so frustrated now now perry duncan perry points out that this view is maybe a bit hasty but indeed battenberg was very financially dependent on russia at this point now this is all very clear in st petersburg as the prince argued his case to his uncle he was received kindly by the emperor and alexander did agree to sorry Emperor Alexander, did agree to withdraw a few officials who Prince Alexander did not get along with, but his request to change the constitution was completely unacceptable. Again, Russia desperately needed to stick to the letter of the Treaty of Berlin and not rock the geopolitical boat at this moment. It couldn't upset European states. So, Battenberg was stuck with what he had. Making this clear, the emperor wrote, quote, "...it must not be forgotten." that the existing constitution of Bulgaria was prepared according to the decrees of the Treaty of Berlin, by the representatives of the nation, to whom complete liberty of decision and expressly reserved by my orders. The constitution has been recognized by all the powers as it emerged from their deliberations. Direct intervention on my part to abolish it and to grant a new one would expose me to the accusation of exercising illegal intervention in the affairs of the principality." Hence, it is not desirable to proceed by this means to remedy the difficulties that experience has shown to exist. End quote. He went on to recommend using persuasion and new elections to boost the prince's influence, but this is clearly kind of a little optimistic thinking. So, Prince Alexander returned to Sofia in April and begrudgingly opened the Second National Assembly, as Bishop Clement resigned as caretaker prime minister. Finally, after two attempts to govern with a conservative cabinet and with much Russian pressure, Alexander asked the liberal Dragan Tsankov to form a government. Remember, Tsankov was kind of the representative of the moderate faction of the liberals. So, the liberals were finally in charge. It only took winning two elections to get them there. But to say there was a coldness between Tsankov and his sovereign would be a bit of an understatement. Alexander was by this point frustrated enough to state that, quote, it is impossible to rule with the absurd Bulgarian constitution, for it makes no difference whether the conservative or the liberal party is in power, as both are equally democratic and unreliable, end quote. So that's where we will leave off today. A liberal government is finally being formed, and the outlook for Bulgarian government and democracy is not great. Prince Alexander is more frustrated than ever, and tensions are building between him and the dominant liberals. Meanwhile, Eastern Romania is proceeding calmly, bringing in new technologies like electric lights and telephones and conducting politics with the regularity of a Swiss watch. Where these two approaches will take these two parts of Bulgaria remains to be seen. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com, though that's on hold for now until I figure out, uh, Well, basically get some partners to help me continue it. And yeah, check out the website. There's maps, timelines, list of important people, all kinds of good stuff to help you follow along there. And I'll see you in the next episode.